I once had a dream about Catherine Keener. It was many years ago. I was just a little tweener. She smoked a cigarette and said, Kid, you're new here. We were filming Pretty Woman. Where the fuck was Richard Gere? She said to me something that I followed to this day. And now I have realized I've been led astray. She said in Hollywood, you should never tell your stories. But this ain't Hollywood, and it's time to tell my stories. Hi. This is Never Tell Your Stories with Michelle O. Medlin. Today, I'm going to go all in on sexual assault. Because fuck it. We all have stories we never tell. And this is mine. I was 19 going to school in Mars Hill College in the beautiful hills of North Carolina. I was a musical theater major and I was a major drunk. The fact that I was a drunk only has bearing on this story because I was drunk during both of my sexual assaults. The fact that I was drunk doesn't mean I should have been attacked, but this is the show of full disclosure, and that's mine. I drank a lot, and I blacked out a lot. I didn't black out for either of these stories, though. The first one is just a little one that falls under the new boys will be boys policy that we're apparently now embracing. I was out with a gorgeous foreign exchange soccer player. He was from, I don't know, I think Colombia. I don't really know. I don't really know his name. I don't remember it anyway. And just, I just know that his friend and my friend were hooking up, so he and I were also hooking up. But for me, hooking up meant that he and I were in the back seat of his friend's car and we were going to go to a party an impossibly cool, popular kid party that I normally wasn't invited to. And my friend in the front seat, she was often invited to these parties. She was magnetic and beautiful and absolutely insane. That wasn't revealed for years to me, and now we don't speak at all. For a time, though, I was kind of obsessed by her, and I wanted desperately, so desperately, to be like her. So there I was in the back seat with this very pretty boy. He and I made small talk for a bit on our way to the party until we pulled off the road so that my friend could pee. But I think it was so they could actually, I don't know, do it in the woods before the party. How very romantic. My date took that opportunity to unzip his pants and shove my face into his crotch, where he demanded I give him a blowjob. I did it, and I gagged, and I didn't understand what I was doing. I was a bit drunk. But as I said before, not blackout drunk. So I took great pleasure in putting my gum that was in my mouth into his fucking patch of pubes. It was big red gum. I was chewing it so that my breath would be fresh in case he wanted to kiss me. He didn't. So he got it anyway. My friend and her boyfriend got back in the car after it was over. Not during. And we left. And then I asked if I could be taken home. And I was. And that's my first assault. I was a freshman in college. My second assault was with the same friend. Or I was with her, rather. Sorry. There's a pattern with this friend. Abuse came around her and later from her. But this ultimately really isn't actually her fault. People are bad on their own. They just need the excuse or the blind eye to be able to do it. Assault is about power. It's never about the blowjob or the rape. A sitting judge on the Supreme Court is the ultimate in power. 
it's really easy to get away with different forms of assault from that high seat. (sighs) I was a sophomore in college this time for this second assault. My friend had invited me to a frat party off campus. I was really excited about it, but I made her promise not to leave me alone at this party because she was the only one I knew there. The fact that I felt it necessary to make her promise is indicative of our relationship. She didn't honor her promise. The party was at this very, very big house off of a very dark road. It was fall and getting chilly, but the house was packed with frat boys and beautiful, impossibly, impossibly beautiful girls. If you were going to play one of these things is not like the other, I'd be the other. I was the proverbial sore thumb. Once we arrived at the party, my friend and her boyfriend disappeared into the crowd. I found the keg and got a beer and wandered around. I felt really cute in my jeans and sweatshirt, my uniform, but I think I even had on mascara that night. I had just been cast as the lead in Agnes of God, so I was feeling really good about myself. The show was just starting rehearsal, but we didn't have any the next day until later in the afternoon, so I didn't have to stay sober. Not that I would have. I, as I have said, was quite a drunk. But the wandering got boring, and however cute I looked faded, and all I wanted to do was leave and go study my script and watch Saturday Night Live with my sweet mates. And then some guy came up to me, and he said that we were in English together. I said, oh, yes, how are you? He said, fine. He said that he had watched me in class. I said, oh, oh. I said, well, I'm looking for my friend, and I want to go. And he said, oh, well, your friend left. I said, oh, again. And in my stomach, I didn't feel good. So I said, well, I guess I'll have another drink. And he offered to get it for me. I said, okay. Even talking about this now, 28 years later, I feel closed in and panicky. I just wanted to go home. Kiefer Sutherland was hosting Saturday Night Live that night, and I really liked Lost Boys. You're eating maggots, Michael. You're eating maggots. How do they taste? (sighs) This house was about five miles from my apartment, as I said, on a pitch black road, and there weren't any sidewalks. So I stayed put, and I let him get me a drink. If I had just made the walk then, it wouldn't have been so bad. When he came back with my drink, I convinced myself that he was a nice guy, that the feeling he was giving off was just my own annoyance that my friend had left, that I was lucky that someone was even talking to me. After the first couple of drinks, it was okay. Then it quickly escalated to not okay. The guy wanted to go somewhere secluded. I said, oh, no, thank you. He wanted to get to know me better. I said, we could do that here. He wanted to tell me about himself. I repeated, we could do that here. Then he started touching, touching my arm, my cheek, kind of grabbing, kind of just forcing his presence too close into my presence, asking me why I didn't want, asking me why I wouldn't just get to know him, that he had been watching me all this time. We could just go away, the two of us. There were so many people there. I kept saying no. (sighs) And then he started getting more forceful. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm not interested. I'm sorry. No, thank you. No, thank you. I'm really sorry. No, thank you. And he, you know, kind of pulled me into him, 
and tried, you know, whatever it is they try. He left to go get me another drink, and I decided to get out. But I was just feeling very out of it, like dizzy, beyond drunk. Did I eat that day at all? Just just out of it. And I got lost in that house. It was just so big. And he found me in this library where I was looking at a book on John Galt. That fucking book. Can't remember the name of it. Fountainhead. And he, again was trying and forceful and just icky. And I said, hey, um, I need to use the restroom. Can you show me where the restroom is? And so he took me there. So I went in to the bathroom, and I saw that there was a window. So I left out of it. I dropped down, and as I got outside, I couldn't... I c- couldn't figure out where I was. It was so confusing. This house was huge and it was so dark. There was no moon that night. I squatted where I was until I got my bearings and then I heard him calling for me. And so I ran. I got up and I hoped I was going the right way until I got to the country road going to Mars Hill. At first, any time I heard a car, I'd run into the ditch until I thought I'd never get home. And then I got scared of what was in the ditch. Like, snakes. It's North Carolina. (sighs) So then I put all caution to the wind and started walking drunkenly down the middle of the road where I was found by the local cops. They asked me why I was out there. And I told them, I told them of my fear, of the boy, of being stranded. I was crying really hard by this time. Very hard. They took me to my my suite, my apartment, and SNL was still on. It was the end credits. And my suite mates, my sisters, they took me in. And the cops said I'd have to talk to them the next day. So the next day I went in, and I attempted to tell them what happened. But it wasn't that bad, right? And they told me it wasn't so bad. And I mostly believed it. I dropped it. They didn't mind. But then I had to see him in my English class. And we had a big presentation coming up where we had been paired up with people, and I was in a panic. And for a week I spun and avoided places I would go and classes I needed to go to, and I poured myself into Agnes and kind of went fucking apeshit. I knew that at the end of the week, by the end of the week, I knew that at the end of that week I would have a partner if I liked it or not. So I went to my professor and asked for her not to put me with him. And I cried, and she didn't ask me any questions. I barely passed that semester. I got glowing reviews for my Agnes, though. I was really good in that (laughs) show. That semester, I was paranoid, scared, and I gained a lot of weight. And the next semester, I started therapy. Because the role of Agnes and Agnes of God made me crazy. At least that's what I told the therapist. And I never talked about what happened that night to her or to anyone, really. Please believe women. Please believe women. That's all I got today. Believe us when we say that something happened. Only about 2% of all rape and related sex charges are determined to be false. Let that sink in. 2%. Put it another way. 
we are much more likely to disbelieve a woman she says she was raped than if she said she was robbed, but for no good reason. And on a related note, only about 40% of rapes are ever reported to the police. And this is partly because victims know that if their claim becomes public, their every behavior will be scrutinized. They will be shamed for their sexual history, and they will be labeled as lunatic, paranoia, psychotic, and manipulative. Furthermore, only one in two claims are led to the prosecution. So if the DA decides not to prosecute, that says nothing about whether or not it happened. And the only way this is going to change is when we are believed. Please vote on November 6th. Please. Thank you.